In last week's episode of the rise of the Coca-Cola company, we looked at the origins of the super secret formula, and we also had a chance to analyze what soda fountains were like back then, the old-fashioned version of a pub. The only difference, of course, is that you wouldn't be served by a bartender, but you would be served by a pharmacist. We also talked about James Tufts, an entrepreneur from Massachusetts who had exhibited his soda fountain at the Centennial Exposition in Philadelphia. He paid $50,000. It was a lot of money, but it made him a lot of money in the end because a lot of people had wanted to have their own fountains, their own custom-made soda fountains built for them. If we fast forward 20 years, you might recognize a character from last week's episode, a man by the name of Joseph Biedenhahn. This fella was a guy who got into the Coca-Cola business, the drinks selling business, to avoid some of the trauma that he had from when Vicksburg had to surrender in the Confederate War. Although there isn't a direct link between James Tufts and Joseph Biedenhahn, Biedenhahn had realized that the soda fountains of Vicksburg couldn't accommodate everyone in the area who might like to drink Coca-Cola, and he thought that there must be a better way. It is recalled that he said, the thought struck one day, why not bottle it for our country trade? Even in the cities, the fountains were limited in number and scattered here and there. It was actually a summer morning in 1894, when Joseph Biedenhahn sat in his office looking at the barrels of Coca-Cola syrup. A couple minutes later, he found himself experimenting with a second-hand bottling machine, as you do. No direct link there once again, but he found himself experimenting with that same machine. This particular machine had been ordered to bottle a little lemon soda and something called a sassaparilla for customers. And a few minutes later, he was bottling Coca-Cola. For those who know what sassaparilla is, it's a root beer. It is something that is quite prominent in Asian countries. It's known as sassy in some of those. But these days, it's made with artificial flavors. Just a generic root beer would probably be the easiest comparison. Mr. Biedenhahn had a lot of time, obviously. He was very invested into Coca-Cola as a business. He was recalled pouring the soda into some Hutchinson bottles, which came with rubber stoppers attached to a wire contraption that was yanked up into the bottle's neck to seal the contents. If a person wanted to open one of these quote-unquote Hutchinson's bottles, then he would have to jam the stopper down with the flat of your hand, or maybe something that's a little bit more sturdier. And when the stopper fell back into the soda, it produced a hollow bang as the gas behind it was released. That is the common term known as the soda pot right now. It came to mean a sweet, fizzy, soft drink in a bottle. That pop, that sound, is what we hear every single time we open one of the glasses, whether you bang the corner against the table, or you could even use a spoon. And if you don't use a spoon and are stupid enough to use your teeth, then that is really upsetting. But at least you got to enjoy the beautiful and wonderful taste of Coca-Cola. Now, when Biedenhahn tried to bottle Coke, nobody had told him to do so. He didn't have permission to do so, basically. But he also wasn't told by anybody that he wasn't able to bottle the Coca-Cola. Now, to anybody out there, if you had an opportunity to do something that could make millions, 
Why wouldn't you do it if it was completely legal? Nobody told you you can't do it, you had all the time in the world like Biden Han did. He had two options, to sit there contemplating about strain and loss, or to sit there and contemplate about coke. Well, you guessed it, this is what he did. Immediately after bottling, on a very small scale basis, with those sample bottles that Biden Han had, he sent a crate full of the bottled Cokes to Asa Candler, the CEO at the time in Atlanta. Candler, who was obviously in love with Coke at the time, said, this is great, keep doing it, and let's hopefully see where this can go. So Biden Hahn started selling some of these bottled Cokes to local farmers, and people were loving it. He made sure that he drilled holes that exactly fit the necks in the crates he used, so he had his own production line going along as well. It seems that Biedenhahn spotted the perfect gap in the market, but the issue is the United States was a vast and thirsty country. Its wilderness was only half conquered by coke and its cities were still forming. It would only take a third man, and obviously the Spanish-American War that came afterwards, to come up with a plan that brought bottles of coke to the rest of the nation. This chap by the name of Benjamin Franklin Thomas, a Chattanooga lawyer who had moved restlessly through a series of different occupations. He had a bit of frictional unemployment there, he couldn't find the right job. He was always searching for where the money was, that pot of gold that would set him up for life. And as Thomas was on this journey, he shipped out all the way to the Cuban city of Manzanilla, where he worked as an aide to the army assistant quartermaster. His assignment was really dull as a military campaign. All the battles were fought at the sea, so he would just be watching and almost being like an office boy, getting the papers and stuff. He saw Cubans everywhere, though, strolling through the streets with these bottles filled with carbonated pineapple drinks in their hands. And it was the bottled drinks that he kept coming back to. And he thought to himself, why couldn't I take that drink that was so popular and well-known and sell it in a bottle back home. Well, it was non-original thought, because you've had bottled mineral water in the past, bottled lemonade, and other flavoured beverages that had been for sale in the United States for more than 50 years. But Thomas knew that Coca-Cola did not come in bottles, at least not where he lived. Like many a southerner, he tried it and fallen in love with the flavour. Not to mention the kick from the caffeine and the coca at the time. And he couldn't get Coca-Cola anywhere but these soda fountains. And when he ordered it at the counter, he had to drink it right away or the bubbles would lose their energy and the Coke would remain flat and the beverage would remain dull. Now Thomas really wanted to act on this idea that he had. He went to one of his friends by the name of Joseph Brown Whitehead. He was a Mississippi-born lawyer and he went with him to Atlanta to ask the legendary Asa Candler for permission to bottle coke. Now, anybody looking back would think this is a great idea, a huge gap in the market. I bet you Asa Candler would agree. But here's the issue. Thomas and Whitehead got a reception that was flatter than a glass of coke, left out overnight. In fact, forget overnight, a glass of coke that is left out for months and nobody would attend to it. And then you go and drink it and you see it's so dull. Well, to summarize, that is the reception that they got. They weren't treated well. To begin with, Candler didn't have a high opinion of their hometown. He said that he'd only been there once and he would write years later and didn't think much was going on there. 
certainly not compared with the endlessly striving Atlanta, and he thought even less of their bottling idea. By himself, he had made a nation of Coca-Cola drinkers. As the supplicant sat before him, Coke was in the process of selling 214,008 gallons of syrup that year, topping the record set 12 months earlier, just 12 months earlier, with every gallon producing close to 400 Coca-Colas. Candler was pouring his trademark beverage down the throats of Americans 7 million times a month. He had already made Coca-Cola a household name. All these fountains had already accomplished more than what they would have expected from Coca-Cola, and the fountains had been good to him. Candler told Thomason Whitehead that bottling is simply too expensive of an idea, and he hadn't gotten the company involved purely down to the cost and out of arrogance. Candler didn't want anybody else doing it, because having people fooling around with the Coca-Cola brand might actually harm its image. The brand that he spent the last decade building up, and that was now making so much money for him from coast to coast. Candler was still the principal owner and the reverent curator of Coca-Cola, arriving in Atlanta in 1873 with seven quarters in his pocket. He had tramped up and down the dusty streets looking for work and had finally got himself a spot in Coca-Cola. By a spot in Coca-Cola, we mean making money. We don't mean being an employee because Candler had actually owned a store called Holman and Candler. That was by 1877 in the fast-growing city of Atlanta where he and his partners sold wholesale and retail remedies, patent medicines, mainly because they were the most profitable industry in Atlanta. In 1888, he bought a third interest in the Coca-Cola formula, largely because its creator was a friendly rival who had become ill and wanted to retire. And within a few months after that, Mr. Candler, the genius himself, the legendary Asa Candler, who had found that the drink helped ease his current headaches, took full control of the formula, adding it to a small string of other products that he owned, like Triple B, officially registered as Botanic Blood Balm, and Delictolave, a liquid toothpaste. Candler did build up those small brands by selling shares in Coca-Cola in 1892 to some of his friends, though he did keep a majority stake in the family group. Asa Candler managed to change all the products in his drugstore to Coca-Cola. He was not selling anything except for Coca-Cola, and he managed to energetically persuade every drugstore that he had heard happened to be lacking in the Coca-Cola front to give these out or dispense them at the time. Now, he had a legendary marketing prowess. It was from the start something so strong, he instituted a system of tickets or coupons as we now know them, that entitled the bearer to one free Coca-Cola starting in 1888 or so. So pharmacists were mailed these tickets by the hundreds and when they served those free Cokes, Candler promised that they would be reimbursed from the firm in Atlanta. Coke salesmen also stood on street corners handing out these tickets. The program was so popular, people loved the free samples. And when Candler cut them off in 1905, fearing that he'd sent too many tickets out, the public outcry was so huge to the extent that he brought this program back even bigger than ever the following year. 
and it ended for good in 1931, but in the 1950s, the occasional ticket would still turn up in the company's mailroom, used only recently by someone who held onto it for a long time. I reckon they'd probably sell them on eBay. It would be a good way to make some quick cash if you're a Coca-Cola fanboy or fangirl. The thing is though, Candler had built Coca-Cola into something that resembled a cult. There were some brands that came up, these quote-unquote imitators as he put it, that came up at a time when every pharmacist and his brother had come up with the syrup that approximated Coca-Cola. Some had their own syrups under names like Dixie Cola, Afri Cola, Coca-Cola, and even Bicycola, which was apparently inspired by the two-wheeler that we know as a bike or a bicycle. Now, there was a publication called The National Druggist that circulated some recipes for drinks that sounded a lot like Candler's product. I recall one drink being called Pick Me Up, which is quite a funny name. They also had another one called Nerve Bracer. It sounds like a ride at Thorpe Park. This concoction consisted of valerian, cardamom, coriander, cinnamon, orris, coca, green tea, and alcohol. Some things you may recognize, some things you may not, but there was a lot, there were a lot of interesting ingredients put in there. Fountain use, the author of the National Druggist, had advised make a thick syrup with 350 parts of sugar and just enough water to fully dissolve it. Well, Candler didn't want these make-your-own syrups, these DIY syrups that had been circulating, to get any fame. He wanted people to ask for his syrup by name, as if Coca-Cola were a religion. This is obviously not a direct quote, but we had to include a little bit of exaggeration, as Candler's love for Coke was beyond what the norm would be expected for a simple soft drink, right, that uh, had very similar substitutes out there. Well, pharmacists at the time had to pay for Coca-Cola syrup. Candler had charged them a premium, and they soon found out, based on the name he was building up around the country, that this would pay off in the long run. Many of them were annoyed, though, by this, knowing full well that the actual cost of the ingredients in Coke were actually much smaller than the premium they were paying to dispense Coke at their pharmacies. Well, on the other hand, backed by Candler's relentless marketing, they also got other people to tell them that it was, as Coke executives would say for decades, the real thing, the original, the OG, as many of us would put it. It was the big brand. The tactful Coke executives had convinced these owners of the drugstores that all they would need to do is charge a higher price. And as people were so addicted to the drink that is known as Coke, they would be able to achieve this higher price and thus achieve a higher margin, making higher profits and doing much better than these self-made brands that probably won't even sell. It's kind of like everyday value brands that you'll get in a place like Sainsbury's. If you go in there and you see the normal beans and then you see Heinz beans, you'd probably go for the Heinz beans, but the cost of the Heinz beans is significantly higher than what you would be paying for the everyday value own brand beans. Now on Coke's journey to the top, they decided that they wanted to be the only brand out there. And in their journey, they fought different brands. They would zealously pursue competitors who used names that sounded too much like Coca-Cola. They would take these small brands and small competitors to court to make sure that their own trademark reigned supreme. Almost like a soft drink dictator 
Coke was at the time, but Coke wasn't just any ordinary brand. They wanted to be dominant. They wanted to be the greatest of all time. And as we conclude episode two of the rise of the Coca-Cola company, I'd like to give a little teaser at next week's episode, which will talk about Thomas and Whitehead, the fellas that we mentioned in brief detail, the guys that wanted to bottle Coke that Candler said no to. Well, there's an interesting deal that may have actually ended more favorably for Thomas and Whitehead over Candler. And how could the man at the top be so foolish to give away such a powerful position? Well, we'll find out in next week's episode. I've been your host, Ryan Kia. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, be sure to sign up on our site at quantumresearch.co.uk for more additional content and some updates on when the next episode drops. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time.